Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest on an alarming increase in overdose deaths across the nation and in Minnesota. The highly invasive jumping worm arrives in our state, and a former gopher goes fishing. But first, this is the second big weekend in a row on Minnesota's political scene, and MNN's Bill Werner is here with a report. Scott, Democrats are in Rochester this weekend, endorsing Tim Walls as their candidate for governor. The fight's not over, but we've got the ball back. We're on offense, and we're making progress. The Minnesota DFL Party's endorsement of Governor Tim Walls is happening in the very same venue, the Mayo Civic Center in Rochester, where one week ago Republicans chose their candidate for the state's top executive office, and it was nowhere near as clean a process. Look around you. This is what your Republican Party looks like. You're white, you're old, and what I was trying to do, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling the truth. That's Lacey Johnson, the lieutenant governor running mate of Lexington Mayor Mike Murphy, one of five candidates who jostled the whole day last Saturday for the Minnesota Republican Party's endorsement for governor. It took nine ballots, and former state senator Scott Jensen, the eventual winner, was first or second place on all of the ballots. Neil Shaw, in second to last place, dropped out after ballot two, endorsing Murphy. The only conservative that has a chance to win today, Mayor Mike Murphy and Lacey Johnson. And after ballot three, state senator and former majority leader Paul Gazelka, in last place from the first ballot, told the convention, You have chosen and want an outsider, and I'm throwing my support to Kendall Qualls. It was Qualls versus Murphy versus Jensen for three more ballots, but Murphy steadily lost ground while Qualls remained on top until the most tense moments of the convention when Murphy threw his support to Jensen, accusing rival Qualls. Kendall offered me the lieutenant governor position, then he took it back. Kendall's a sellout. I'm glad I didn't. Scott Jensen for governor. Qualls told delegates his integrity was soiled and no offer was ever made to Murphy. Because he didn't get his way, he stormed out and went straight to Scott Jensen. The beneficiary of that rift was Jensen, who picked up nearly enough delegates to capture the endorsement, but some questioned his commitment to Second Amendment rights. When I was in my first term as a senator, I put myself on the wrong side of the gun issue by thinking I could compel a conversation by putting my name on a bill and removing it six weeks later. That was a mistake, and I'm sorry, and I won't ever do it again. Jensen's lone remaining rival, Kendall Qualls, not impressed. He has apologized for his record. You're not going to have to worry about me apologizing for anything. But Jensen's apology on gun rights might have moved some delegates his way. And after the ninth ballot... We have an endorsed candidate... Scott Jensen. Let's send a clear message to Tim Walls. We appreciate that you tried, but we're going to give you early retirement. Game over, Tim Walls. Game over. Needless to say, that is not the view this weekend in Rochester at the DFL party convention. The same people who blocked us are trying to take us backwards. Their dangerous views, discouraging vaccines and masking, downplaying COVID, put politics ahead of science and put lives at risk. We won't let that happen. We've got to move forward as one Minnesota, growing our economy by investing in workers and small business, 
improving police training and accountability. While tackling crime and gun violence. And giving every child a world-class education, no matter who they are or where they live. That's why we're running for re-election. And while Democrats endorsed their slate of candidates in Rochester, back in St. Paul, Republicans and Democrats are wrangling over the state budget surplus as Sunday's midnight deadline draws ever closer. Last weekend in Rochester, Senate Republican Majority Leader Jeremy Miller was hinting at a deal with Democrats. If we can do that type of targeted spending with permanent ongoing tax relief, I think we can strike a deal. But if the Democrats are going to continue to focus on spend, 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 uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to get there. Monday morning, Miller, Governor Walls, and House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler announced the framework of a deal on the budget surplus. $4 billion in tax relief, what kinds to be determined. $4 billion total for public schools, health and human services, and other programs, including $450 million for public safety, and $4 billion left uncommitted for a decision next year by whoever controls the legislature and the governor's office after the election. But all the details still had to be worked out with not much time left. We're not telling you that this isn't going to be hard this week. There's some hard decisions. I still feel very strongly that we need to have some one-time money right back in the buckets of uh, folks right now. What the governor has been calling walls checks. Senate Republican Majority Leader Miller said permanent ongoing tax cuts. Especially at a time when Minnesotans are struggling with record rates of inflation. The governor did acknowledge. I think there is a role for some uh, some permanent tax cuts, especially if they're targeted to families, families with children and some of those things. Among the biggest sticking points this last weekend of the legislative session is how to use $450 million in public safety funding. Well, we're coming down to a little bit of a stalemate. Senator Warren Limmer from Maple Grove, who with fellow Republicans is pushing hard for more police officers on the streets. Representative Carlos Mariani from St. Paul responded, Democrats want that too, but also want funding for crime prevention programs. I am not walking out of this conference committee signing off on the Senate bill. That's just not happening. Public safety, E-12 education, health and human services, tax relief, those and many other issues on lawmakers' plates. And what if they do not get everything done by midnight on Sunday? Would Governor Walls reconsider and call a quick special session to dot the I's and cross the T's? At this point in time, I'm, the, the clock is the clock. The state of the state was the roadmap to get to this, and we are right on track to get there. So we're sticking with our roadmap, and we're going to get it done. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to fda.gov slash BeSafeRx.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. A recent report from the CDC shows that overdose deaths were up across the U.S. last year. It's a troubling trend, and I chatted with Dr. Alta Deru of Hazelden Betty Ford in Minnesota about the causes and some possible solutions moving forward. The, the takeaway is that it reinforces our knowledge that uh, substance use disorder just rages in the setting of isolation, of isolation and without any community intimacy, people return to use. Um, They've had the stressors of COVID and unemployment and financial stressors, and these things can overwhelm a person. And when they don't have a good social network or they don't have that community intimacy or coping skills, Often they resort to things that make them feel better, and unfortunately, uh, some of these things can be lethal. Just like we saw um, the increase in opioid overdose deaths, we also saw an increase in cocaine overdose deaths and stimulants. And when I say stimulants, that includes methamphetamines. And so, um, you know, my big takeaway is that it reinforces um, what we've known about addiction when you cut off the, um, the intimacy, the social connections that somebody may have, then it leaves a person um, to just, um, you know, sit with their disease, which unfortunately would just go unchecked during, during COVID. And um, we are, we're seeing this in our facilities. So in March, we had the highest number of admissions Um, in our history of 70, over 70 years in uh, treatment. So across the United States, we had close to 700 admissions, which was the highest. And um, and then uh, April was another record-breaking year for us in that we had had the highest admissions in uh, three years, I believe. So we're definitely seeing this. So, Doctor, beyond the fact that maybe COVID is 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 letting up to some extent now compared to where we were maybe a year ago, um, are you seeing any hopeful signs that that this can reverse or that people might be more prone to uh, getting help at, at this particular right. time? That's a great question. I always like to land on optimism too. So. During this time, and because we're getting out the word like this with, you know, folks like yourself who are reporting on this, families and communities are becoming more aware of it. And the when people tell their stories about drug addiction, it lowers the stigma. And by lowering the stigma, we're seeing more and more people come into treatment. So the good news about all of these admissions that we've had, record-breaking admissions, means that people are actually seeking treatment. They're getting help instead of just suffering alone. So that would be the positive takeaway is that people are actually getting the encouragement to come come in for treatment. Uh, I, I hate to reverse course on the positivity, but I, I do know that uh, recidivism in terms of, uh, you know, backsliding into addiction can be uh, something of an issue. Is there any particular, uh, uh, again, message of hope that you might have for people that have tried to, mm-hmm. to go down the path of, of recovery and have, have had a hard time getting down the path? Yeah. So what we find is most beneficial in patients who are in early recovery, one of the best things for sustained recovery is to have family involvement, family support, spousal support, that type of thing. So when you know that your sober community is supporting you, we find that those people do better. 
in recovery. Also, when they're engaged in like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, they're staying within that community of like-minded people that are also seeking sobriety. So those people who are early in recovery, their, their chances of sustained recovery come when they have a supportive family environment and they're going to meetings and their friends around them are also living a drug-free life or alcohol-free life. So those are the ones who have the best chances of sustained recovery. Uh, doctor, how much of an impact is fentanyl having on these overdose deaths? Obviously, we're hearing about it, it seems like, more and more. Is it a significant contributing factor? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So when people would come in uh, for an opioid use disorder, we could point to heroin or Percocet. But now it's more often folks are coming in straight up using fentanyl. They may know they're using fentanyl, or it's discovered that the benzodiazepine that they thought they were taking was actually pressed fentanyl. So what we're finding is that fentanyl, because it's so cheap and it's an ultra-synthetic that can be made, that it is, um, it's mixed in with a lot of the other drugs that people may be using. And so now they're, they're um, unknowingly using a substance contaminated with fentanyl. And how that appears to us then when we're trying to treat somebody with medicines, it makes it very complicated to choose when to start a medication and what medication to choose because fentanyl has different properties than um, heroin that we've seen in the past. Uh, one last thing, doctor, I guess I would ask if we do have listeners out there that are struggling or have family members that are struggling, what's the first step they need to take? You know, get the support of your family. Go in to see your family physician. Um, if you can't see that person, then pick up the phone and call um, a treatment center. If it's really bad and you think that um, you won't be able to white-knuckle it to get into the treatment center, you can always go into the um, emergency room. who may be able to um, mitigate the risk of seizure from withdrawal from benzos or alcohol. Um, but uh, I would highly suggest that they just pick up the phone, call us, call us for help um, at Hazleton Betty Ford. We have 16 sites around the United States, and we would love to help them. We would greet them with open arms. That's Hazleton Betty Ford's Dr. Alta Deru. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The highly invasive jumping worm, which can damage soil and gardens, has spread across several Midwestern states, including Minnesota. Tasha Radel has more. Joining me today is Ryan Huffmeyer with the University of Minnesota Duluth. Ryan, I'm going to start out with a really basic question. What is a jumping worm? Sure. Uh, jumping worms are uh, earthworms that live in the top uh, two, three, four inches of soil, uh, they can live in high densities and they have voracious appetites and consume a lot of the organic material such as your mulch or your compost that's in your, your yards or your gardens um, and really can alter the way that uh, the nutrient cycling and the soil structure is made up of. So is the jumping worm considered invasive? 
Yes. Yeah, so in, in Minnesota and the Great Lakes region, uh, any, any earthworm that we see in our area is an invasive uh, earthworm. They are all non-native coming from uh, different areas. Uh, and we're, uh, once, you know, when we had the glaciers, um, the glaciers kind of, even if we had earthworms prior to glaciation, uh, they were eradicated through the, the grinding of the ice and the long frozen uh, time that we had. So is there any way to prevent, I guess, getting jumping worms? So, you know, researchers are, are working on that as we speak, and we'll continue to learn more as this summer goes and as the year, the next year or so unfolds. Uh, but right now, there's really nothing we can do except just take that earthworm that you see or the, the jumping worm. And first off, learn to identify jumping worms from the typical European earthworms that we've grown up with. Um, and that is something that um, people can do by going to the Jumping Worms Project page. There's a good uh, tutorial on how to identify. But learning how to make that distinction, and, and you don't need any specialized equipment to do this. You can do it with the, uh, your naked eye. You can do it with a hand lens. You can do it with uh, you know, a lot of smartphones have really good cameras on that you can take good enough pictures to, to see some of the characteristics. And learning to identify them is a, a really important piece. Okay, Ryan, I'm going to be doing some gardening this weekend. Let's say I find jumping worms. What do I do? Kill them? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the general recommendation now is to, you know, when you if you have them on your property, one, don't, you know, a lot of reactions for people are they want to, like, scrape up all their all their compost, they want to scrape up all their mulch that they found the jumping worms in and bag it up and take it somewhere else. <laughs> and really all you're doing, right, is just moving that problem to somewhere else. And so, uh, you know, if you see them, you can collect them. And, and again, the, the, the recommended uh, approach is to throw them in a plastic bag and then, you know, throw them in the garbage. So just kind of recapping, jumping worms can do a lot of damage uh, to that top soil layer in a short period of time. So again, they, you know, they just, earthworms are really good at their job and that's taking organic matter and helping to break it down, right? And yep. just like the fungus and bacteria do. And, but they do it really quick and they're, you know, again, really efficient and effective at their job. So when you get a whole bunch of these jumping worms, and again, they just live up in the surface, right? They're feeding on the fresh litter. They can really turn all that topsoil into casting. So it's just a layer of worm poop that could be a couple inches thick. Now you think about this, even if it's on a slight gradient or slight hill and you get a heavy rain, what's going to happen to all those castings? It gets washed down and out. And so, I mean, that, that leaching of nutrients, that leaching of soil has negative impacts up the, up the uh, uh, you know, on other living things and plants. Well, we're about out of time, Ryan. Any final thoughts today? The, the best thing we can do, because they're not, we've only found them in the southeast and up through the metro area as far as St. Cloud. So the best thing we can do when people are out across the state gardening and landscaping is keeping an eye out because we want to know where we're not finding them as well. So the, the better idea we have of where they are and where they're not and, and how dense those populations are can really help us formulate management strategies moving forward to hopefully keep areas that they're not, you know, jumping worm free. Thanks again to my guest, Ryan Huffmeyer, with the University of Minnesota Duluth. Well, folks, that's going to do it for this week. And uh, I hope I didn't catch you while you were eating your breakfast talking about, oh, lovely jumping worms. All right, I'm Creepy and Crawly now. Scott, back to you. 
Thanks, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Former Golden Gopher men's basketball player Luke Lowy has taken on an interesting postseason ambition. The Fond du Lac, Wisconsin native played one season of basketball with the Gophers and has now reestablished the U of M Bass Fishing Club, getting involved in competitive fishing. Lowy is hoping to become a professional bass master at some point and is excited about the college fishing schedule. MN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Lowy about the Gopher Bass Fishing team. The Minnesota Bass team used to have a really good team, won a national championship, um, had a lot of success, and then you know the kind of the team kind of went under because of COVID. Um, no one really kept it going. But when I got here, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to check into that. Obviously, basketball was my main focus, but I kind of was able to get this thing back up and started. I worked on it just throughout the year here and there. And then once the season was over, I was going to be able, I was done with basketball. So I was going to be able to compete in these college tournaments and fish for the Minnesota bass team. So that's kind of always been like in the back of my mind, a little dream of mine to be able to play basketball and fish in college. So it's been fun so far. I've already fished in a couple of collegiate tournaments, got a bunch more going on this summer and even into the fall next year. So. Wow. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So when um, when the club team, and first of all, I guess if, if you're in the land of 10,000 lakes, you know, that the big main flagship university should have a good fishing team, right? Uh, for, 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 for starters, one. So uh, I think people can appreciate the fact that you're getting it re-going. Two, what, what's the club like? I mean, how many people? Do you get some funding from the school as part of a club? And do you need more funding to, to, to keep it going? Kind of take us through that part of it in terms of organizing it. It's a student group, just a student organization, um, but we do get some funding from the school. We can apply for grants to travel to some of these further tournaments, and they can accept our grants and then supply some funding for the for our travels and stuff like that. But yeah, we have some great sponsors as well for, for the club that have helped us out with some money as well as some gear, um, like some baits and equipment that the guys can use or can get for a, a good discounted price. So. Right now we have like, I think, I believe 17 members. So far we've had two teams that have traveled to collegiate tournaments though for the bass tournaments, but we, we still have a lot of members that enjoy being a part of the team and fishing up here in Minnesota. So that's been good. I know there's, there's a lot more tournaments coming up closer that we'll hopefully have more teams competing in. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot we can grow on as far as fundraising things and just growing as a club, but it's kind of just the first year. It's good to get 
get our feet wet and get this thing back up and started. Yeah, cool. So you mentioned you, you've been in a couple tournaments. How, how have you done? Uh, and I suppose some of us just kind of learning how the process of, of a tournament might go. I know you've tournament fished before, but is there different things with, with the college tourneys and, and how, have, how have you guys done so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been a great experience so far. We Our first tournament was down in Table Rock Lake in Missouri. We went down there for almost a week and spent the week down there. And that was a tough tournament for both of the teams that went down there. We kind of we didn't do so great, but it was a great learning experience. Um, and then the second college tournament that we fished was out on actually Lake Wisconsin, back kind of home here. So we did much better, and now we got a third place. With um, My partner and I got third place now, so that was, that was a fun tournament. But my partner and I... Our next bigger one is going to be in Saginaw Bay in June. I think it's June 9th and 10th. And then later on in the summer, we got another big one on the Mississippi River out of La Crosse. So we're looking forward to that one as well. But, yeah, it's been a great learning experience. These college anglers are, are really good, though. So I just like um, the highest level of basketball that I played in this year. It's it's the same with fishing. These guys are good. That's what they do. So Yeah, no no question. You mentioned the one coming up in July uh, on the Mississippi. Uh, is there a difference uh, when you're fishing for bass in the river as opposed to the lake? And what, what are some strategies there? Yeah, I mean, the, the, during the summer on the river, um, should be a, that should be a good tournament. Um, obviously the current plays a factor. Um, there'll be a lot of backwater fishing, but yeah, the water will be a lot warmer. So, I mean, top water will probably play a lot more in that tournament um, on the river, but that's a really good bass factory. Mississippi river produces a lot of, a lot of nice fish. So, um, whereas the, the one down on table rock is deep, clear, the water was still cold. So, um, the conditions always change for time of year and what the bass are doing. So you just kind of got to adjust and stuff like that. I will add that, like, oh, one another difference that's not as much, like, strategy is that tournament will probably be best three fish in, in July. Just to, I think the DNR does that to, um, for the health of the fish, sure. not keeping someone alive well. So that'll be best three where it's, like, usually it's, like, your best five bass and weight um, combined is what you weigh in so that's great it's 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 fun to watch i've i've you know i mean i think everyone at some point is either thumb through the channels and watch some of the bass masters on on tv or or maybe uh, here in minnesota there's you know there's some of those events around i know there's some good bass fishing and good fishing in general um now the question then too uh, when you watch those a lot of these dudes have you know their sponsors and their long sleeve shirts so they you know keep the sun off uh, do you guys have some fancy you know gopher gear that you get to wear out on on, on the water we do. We uh, we have some team jerseys that we wear. We put those together with our team sponsors and stuff like that that have helped us get the club up and going. Um, so yeah, we got we're, we we like to represent our our sponsors and the people that have supported us so far. If there are some Gopher fans out there, Gopher supporters who are also maybe avid outdoorsmen or fishermen or what have you, and they're listening and they say, "Oh, I, I didn't even know about this. Maybe I'd like to support it." What uh, what can they do to help support the club? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean. First off, they could send me an email or shoot me a call or text. Um, reach out on social media. We're, we have a Facebook page, Minnesota Bass Team, and as well as Instagram, um, Minnesota. I think it's just search University of Minnesota Bass Fishing Team. But yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing. I know a lot of people in Minnesota like to fish, so it's probably, it's a good state to have a fishing team in for sure. That's former Gopher basketball player Luke Lowy with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.